So over the last couple of weeks, uh, during our season of Lent, we've been walking through the book of Jonah. Two weeks ago, we looked at the call of Jonah and how Jonah didn't like his call, so he went the opposite direction. And we saw that there was a word that was repeated over and over again, yarad, meaning to go down. Jonah went, or Jonah went down to uh, Joppa, and Jonah went down into the belly of a boat, and Jonah went down into the belly of a fish, and, and Jonah just kept going down and down and down, and, and he reached into the depths, and yet God's relentless grace found Jonah even in the depths of his life, just like God's relentless grace finds us in the depths of ours. And in Jonah chapter 2, we looked at how Jonah, who is in uh, the depths of the sea, in that belly of that great fish, experienced God's relentless grace, and it caused him to reach out and worship. And how God's relentless grace leads us to worship him. Because God has continued to show Jonah relentless grace. He showed it to him in a storm, a storm that saved him from running away from God, and it showed him uh, relentless grace in a fish that saved him uh, from that great tempest and from the waters and drowning. And God shows us relentless grace. Today, as we look at Jonah 3, we're going to experience and see that relentless grace and how important that is for our very lives. But let's begin with the word of prayer, we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day and this opportunity to gather together. And we pray that as uh, we look at Jonah chapter 3, and as we see Jonah faithfully fulfill his calling to preach to the city of Nineveh, that you would speak into our lives. And there are times where we want to identify with Jonah in this text, and yet all too often we are Nineveh, and we need Jonah preaching to us. So Lord, speak into our lives in the way that you need to, so that you might shape and mold us as the people of God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Roy Regals was a football player in the late 1920s for the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, he played both offense and defense, as they often would do back at that time. And, and he played the nose tackle position, which is the middle of the defensive line on defense, and he would play the center on offense. He was a first-team All-American. He was the captain for that football team, and his coach called him one of the smartest players that he had ever coached in his career. And the University of California, Berkeley was a powerhouse at that time. And in 1929, uh, their team made the Rose Bowl and they played a powerhouse from Georgia Tech. The University of California, Berkeley was 7-1-1. Uh, Georgia Tech was undefeated. They had outscored their opponents that year 210-43. to No one had even come close to them. And so as they're playing that football game, they get about halfway through the second quarter, three quarters of the way through the second quarter, and the score was still tied zero to zero. Georgia Tech has the ball, they're marching down the field, and as they march down the field, on one of the plays, uh, one of the players on Georgia Tech fumbles the football. And Roy Regals, who his coach said had a nose for the football, found the football, scooped it up in the middle of the scrum, got bounced around three or four times, and started heading down the field, sprinting as fast as he could down that field. And he was being chased, and the, and the players on the sideline are screaming and cheering, and the other, other team is screaming and cheering. And, and as he's running down that field, 70 yards away from the end zone, he is tackled at the one-yard line. One yard short of scoring for Georgia Tech. 
He had run the wrong way. In fact, that's where he got his nickname, Wrong Way Roy. To the degree where, because of how close they were to the end zone, uh, their team decided, you know what, we don't want a fumble, we don't want an interception, we're just gonna take a safety. So they took a safety and went in, losing at halftime, two to nothing. Wrong way, Roy. You ever gone the wrong way? You ever gone in a direction you should not have gone? I was talking to my wife about this message ahead of time this week, and, and yesterday she texted me probably at like 3 o'clock and said, Hey, did you, did you, are you listening to Caleb? She goes, Did you hear about that flight? I said, What flight? She goes, she goes Look up the flight that left from London heading to Germany. So I, I quick Googled it and found out that there was a flight that left from London to Germany and landed in Scotland. 525 miles away from where they were supposed to go. I don't know how you do that with modern technology today and with people probably talking to you on your headset, but they went the wrong way. You ever gone the wrong way? Made a decision that you ought not to make? Done something that you knew you shouldn't have done? Gone the wrong way? When you go the, go the wrong way, there are a couple options in that moment, right? Uh, the first option is you just keep going and pretend that you're going the right way and everybody else is wrong. Uh, I experienced that one time. I was driving down a one-way street, and uh, I was going the right way with a lot of other people, but there was uh, this nice little old lady who was going the wrong way. And she was weaving in and out of everybody, going the wrong way. And as she's doing this, she is giving dirty looks and yelling at every single person as they're driving by her. Because she was right and we were wrong, right? Like there are times where you make the wrong decision. You're like, I'm just going to keep going, right? Because I'm in the right. There are other times where you realize, yep, I'm not going in the right way. Some experiences. Have you ever been to a water park where you saw somebody and they're walking towards the wrong dressing room? And then they see the sign, they're like, yeah, I didn't do that, right? And you realize you've gone the wrong way. And in that moment, you have to correct. You have to turn around and go the other way. You have reverse course. Don't you wish life had these signs sometimes? Don't enter. Don't go this way. Turn around. Danger ahead. This is not the direction that you want to go. In the book of Jonah, uh, we see both Jonah, who is going the wrong way, and we see Nineveh, who is going the wrong way. And we see a God who, who goes and speaks into their lives and corrects them, and a God who, in the midst of them going the wrong way, does something that is very significant. And that's what we're going to see today, is, is what does God do for those who are going the wrong way? If you'd open up your Bibles this morning to Jonah, Jonah chapter 3. You can find that on page 775, page 775 in your Bibles in front of you. Jonah has been running the wrong way, and God has been pursuing him, so much so that if you read Jonah 1 and then Jonah 3, if you just skip Jonah 2 and read Jonah 1 and Jonah 3, you will notice that they almost exactly parallel themselves. It says that the word of the Lord came to Jonah the first time and tells him to go to Nineveh. And then in chapter 3, it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message I tell you. God gives Jonah a second chance because he is a God of second chances. And he says, I know you've been running the wrong way. I know that you thought you wanted to go on vacation to Tarshish, but that's not where I want you to be. 
And he turns Jonah around, speaks the word to him a second time, and sends him to Nineveh. Now remember that, that this journey would have been a difficult one for Jonah. Like there, there are no planes, there's no automobiles, no trains, no anything like that at this time. And so this would have been a journey probably by foot or with caravan, close to 45 days he would have journeyed just to get to Nineveh. To think about that whole time, the grace of God that restored him and watched over him and preserved him and the calling that was ahead of him, the change of life. And so again, Jonah, uh, you can see the parallel now actually responds the right way. And, and you will see if you read through it, how the captain and the king are paralleled and the responses of the sailors and the responses of the Ninevites parallel each other. And, and Jonah 1 and 3 parallel each other. But this sheds light on how God works in the lives of those who are going the wrong way. So Jonah arose, in verse 3 it says, and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath, three days' journey in size. Uh, this is an artist's rendition of what they might have thought that Nineveh looked like. Uh, Nineveh that was built on one of the great rivers. Uh, Nineveh who had, would have had very fertile farmland all around it, which would have made them a very prosperous city, uh, a sprawling city, a, a city with great walls and an exceedingly great army befitting that which was the capital of the kingdom of Assyria, uh, the powerhouse nation at that time. In fact, even their architecture would have been beautiful and ornate and very expensive, an artist's rendition of what the palace might have looked like uh, with the river running right next to that palace. A people who were very wealthy, but probably one of the most dangerous places to ever build a church. Just this past week, I was reading an article about uh, the top 10 most dangerous places to build a church in the world today. They listed places like North Korea and Afghanistan, Somalia and Libya. And if they would have done that at this time, Nineveh would have been at the top of that list. A place that would have rejected that message, or so they thought, and would have killed those who called themselves followers of Yahweh. A city that was very secure in its sin. If you read uh, the prophet Nahum that, that lists some of the sins, sins of violence, sexual immorality, idolatry, spiritual complacency, or spiritual bankruptcy, and they were very secure in those sins. And we should be reminded that there are many times when you and I are secure in our sins. We're secure in our negativity. We're secure in our bitterness. We're secure in our, our self-centeredness and, and our belief that we are always right and others are always wrong. We are secure in our spiritual complacency where we have this kind of hobby Christianity where we, we, we act as Christians when it works and suits us, but in where it doesn't, we, we kind of put our Christian faith and values aside. A spiritual complacency that allows us to dwell securely in our faith while still dwelling securely in our sins. And what happens? Well, well it doesn't just happen right away that we become secure in our sin. That happens as a process over time. I'm reminded of that in the lives of my children. Uh, my children have this rule that in the morning, you are not allowed to turn the TV on, nor are you allowed to play video games when you wake up. 
Like, there is no playing video games, and especially, uh, just this is the bane of my existence right now, uh, no playing Fortnite, right? Like, no Fortnite, especially in the morning, okay? School, get ready for school, eat breakfast, and then maybe later, if you get all your chores and homework done, then you can play some video games. And when my children first started disobeying that rule, because that's what children do, right? Like, they test to see if you're going to hold steady with your rules. Uh, the first couple of times, uh, they'll hear me coming down the stairs, and I will immediately hear the TV go off and scurrying going on and everything getting put away because they think that they can make me blind to the fact that they're actually disobeying the rules, right? But I know that they know that they're doing what's wrong because they're trying to hide it. That's what we do when we first start sinning, isn't it? We try and hide it. But you do it after a couple times and, and then all of a sudden my children get a little bit more bold, right? And they don't turn it off, they, they kind of ignore it and then when dad shows up, they're like, oh, I'm sorry, or oh, I totally forgot, oh, you know, I, I got all my stuff, I'm, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that, oh, please forgive me, you know, don't punish me, you know, they get defensive, they get apologetic. But they do that for the 14th, 15th, 16th time and all of a sudden it's like, well, dad, I already got dressed, I'm ready for school and, and, and my sister was doing it yesterday and, and I don't know why we have this rule and, and then all of a sudden, they start to defend their sin. And that is so much like how all of us become secure in our sin. At the beginning, we know it's wrong. And then we become more bold. And then we become more secure. And then we become very complacent in our sin, believing that what we are doing is right and that we can keep doing it. And at those times, you and I, we need to be woken up. If you were here this past Wednesday night, uh, Dr. Pavla from Concordia Mequon was preaching, uh, one of the churches of Revelation, uh, the church where, where Jesus speaks to them and says, wake up, lest your name be removed from the book of life. Wake up. And Jonah comes to Nineveh and he tells the people of Nineveh, wake up. And the words that he uses as he's there, you find in, in verse four, it says, Jonah began to go into the city going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. I just want you to think about what Jonah said. A very, very simple statement, and yet there's so much to unpack in the midst of it. He says, says Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Forty days. Why 40 days? Well, why would he say that to them? Because he's giving them an opportunity. He's giving them a chance. Jonah could have walked in and said, said, you know what, as soon as I leave this city, it's going to be destroyed. Or he could have said, tomorrow morning when you wake up, it'll all be broken down. Yet he doesn't. He says, 40 days, you have a chance to listen to hear the word of God, to repent of your sins, and if not, you will be overthrown. Now, now that word overthrown is such a significant word because that word overthrown actually just means in the Hebrew, you will be changed. In 40 days, you will be changed. And the reason that he preaches that message, in 40 days, your lives will be overthrown, your lives will be changed, is because now Nineveh has the opportunity to decide how will our lives be changed. 
Will we keep living in spiritual complacency and spiritual bankruptcy? Will we keep dwelling securely in our sins of violence and sexual immorality and idolatry? Will we live securely in our brokenness and be destroyed? Or will we be changed by repenting and not entering into those things which we know we ought not to? He says 40 days and you will be changed one way or the other. And this message is a reminder to us of how God operates in our lives. God God operates in our lives according to his character. And his character is he is a God of grace, but he is also a God of justice. He's both. And we need God to be both, a God who brings justice and a God who brings grace. And people today just want to talk about the God of grace, right? Like like God is love and God is a loving God. And so, so God wouldn't judge people and God wouldn't tell people that they can't live the lifestyles that they want to live. Except when we say that, we forget that our God is not just a God of love and grace, but he is a God of justice as well. He is a God who speaks truth. And this is why many times uh, when we speak the word of God, we will have people who say to us, well, you're Christian, and doesn't your own Bible say you shouldn't be judgmental? Judge not lest you be judged. Like, why are you judging others? You shouldn't be judging because God says judge not. And in that moment, you should remind them of the context of that passage that says judge not lest you be judged for in the same way that you judge others, you will be judged. And is there a way in which you and I are judged by God? There is, isn't there? Uh, We are judged by the word of God. We are judged by the truth. So when we speak the truth to others, we're not speaking judgment, we're speaking truth. We're not speaking in a way that is outside of what God calls us to speak because the truth is that there is a judgment day. And there is a day where we will be held accountable for our sins and have to account for each of them. And if it wasn't for the justice and judgment of God, there would be no need for Jesus. If God would say, just just live how you want and do whatever you want, well, well, there would have been no need for Jesus. Jesus came because we did the wrong things, because we lived the wrong way, because we gave in to idolatry and sexual immorality and violence and spiritual complacency in our life. Jesus came because we we went the wrong way. We ignored the do not enter sign and made decisions for our own good and entered into sinfulness and brokenness and security in our own sin. And Jesus paid the price. He was held accountable for our sins and brokenness. And yes, our God is a God of love. While he is a God of love, our sin is deadly. And so he, in the midst of a a sin that leads to death, took that upon himself so that we would have forgiveness and new life in Jesus Christ. So that we can speak out just as Jonah did and says, overthrow your lives, change your lives, change your values, change the way you live so that you might be under the grace of Jesus Christ. Because our God is a God of justice, but he's a God who also brings us love and peace and grace. It's like this. If you saw a child playing in the middle of a busy street, is it a loving thing to do not to correct them and get them out of harm's danger? No. That would be a hateful thing to do to leave them there, wouldn't it? The loving thing to do is to correct them to to bring them into safety. And if we believe that the wages of sin is death, 
then we should offer that gift of truth to those who are living outside of the grace of God. In fact, this is what Jesus himself warns about in Matthew 12 when he speaks of Jonah. He says this, Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and an adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three nights and three days in the heart of the earth. Now, this is why we actually believe the story of Jonah was a true story, because Jesus refers to it as a true story, just as the prophet Jonah, a real person. But he says that, he goes, The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation, and the men of Nineveh will condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. He's saying we should understand that we are sinful. We have gone the wrong way. We have strayed from the calling that God has for us and that we need our lives to be overthrown. And the people hear that message and they repent. And not just the people, but also the king. It goes on and says, So the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne and removed his robe that covered him with sackcloth and sat in ashes. He takes on the sign of mourning and death a reminder of Ash Wednesday and how on Ash Wednesday we wear the sign of death on us. And he issued a proclamation and published this decree throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, meaning hold a fast. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. See what the king said? He said, turn around. Don't keep going that direction. And that's what repentance is. The word repentance actually means to be walking in one direction and then to take a full 180 degree turn and walk the exact opposite way. To turn around, to turn from your sinfulness, to turn from your brokenness, to turn from your spiritual complacency so that you might know the new life that is yours in Jesus Christ. And then notice what the king says. He says, who knows? Maybe God will show us grace. Meaning, we don't deserve this. We deserve to be destroyed. And you and I, we don't deserve God's grace. But that is exactly the point of grace. Grace is the most unfair gift that has ever been given because grace isn't dependent upon us deserving it, but grace is actually dependent on us not deserving it. That's the point of it. Grace is given to those who know I don't deserve God's love and forgiveness, and so I fall on his mercy and ask that he would show me forgiveness and what happens? They overthrow their lives, don't they? In fact, their future reality overthrew their current lives. And that's what God seeks to do for us. Have you ever had that happen where this future reality overthrows your current plans and your current lives? Some of you have experienced that when you went to the doctor. And the doctor it, uh, does blood work and he does tests on you and he says, you know what, uh, you need to start cutting out salts and sugars and you need to eat better and, and you need to lose weight and, and you just need to get healthier because if you keep living this way, uh, your life is going to be cut short. You need to change your lifestyle. Some of you had this happen at work. You went into the boss's office and the boss sat you down and said, you know what, if you keep working with the work ethic that you have right now, you won't be working here anymore. 
Like you need to change or you need to find another job. And that future reality changed, it overthrew their current plans. That's what Jonah does. And that's what God does for you and for me. He says your future reality of a life that is yours eternally should overthrow your current plan so you are not not secure in spiritual complacency, but that you repent and overthrow your lives that you might experience the grace of God. And that's what Nineveh experiences, isn't it? Verse 10. So when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. I love that word, relent. That word relent actually means he changed his verdict. He said, Nineveh, you are guilty, but because you turned, because of your repentance, in that act, I demonstrate my grace and I change the verdict from guilty to innocent. Why? Well, because God desires all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. Or God sent his son so that the entire world might be saved and know the love that is found in Jesus Christ. No one deserved it, but God desired it for each of them. And one sermon converted an entire city, and no one would have expected this except God. A God whose power was able to overthrow them. An exceedingly great God with an exceedingly great grace, which exceedingly covered all of their sins and brokenness. And it reminds us that no matter how great your sin, you cannot outsin the grace of God. You can never outsin God's grace. Your great sin is never greater than the great grace of a God who has given everything for you and restores you fully, no matter how far you have fallen into the depths of your brokenness and the depths of your life. God's grace is greater, and God seeks to overthrow your life by his grace, to change it completely. I love how Moses talks about this in Exodus chapter 20. To, to me, this is one of the most beautiful pictures of how powerful the grace of God is. Would you read these words with me this morning? I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. I want you to think about that for a second. Holding the sin accountable to the third and fourth generation. How many of you can think three to four generations? You, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents. How, how many of you can think back three to four generations? Who in here, can you do that, three to four generations? How about five generations? Who can think great-great-grandparents? Any, a couple of you, okay. Great-great-great-grandparents? Great, 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 right? Like 10 generations, anyone? No, not really, right? Like, like he's saying that, that there is a, a finite understanding of the justice of God. And yet, then he says 10,000 generations. How many years is 10,000 generations? Well, well, if a generation, father to son, uh, mother to daughter is 25, 30 years, then 1,000 generations is how many years? I know it's math class now. How many years? 25,000, 30,000 years, right? And if we believe the genealogy of Scripture, which is why I believe the genealogy of Scripture, then we believe there is 6,000 years from Adam to today. 
which means from Adam to Moses is a whole lot less than 6,000 years. But the genealogy of Scripture shows 6,000 years from Adam to today. So if there is only 6,000 years from Adam to today, then how do you get 1,000 generations? You can't. And could, even if there were 1,000 generations, could you ever even imagine it? No. So what is he saying about his grace? It's beyond our imagination. It's beyond anything we could understand. It is beyond our sin and our brokenness, and you cannot outsin the grace that is shown to you in Jesus Christ, that a relentless grace comes to you from a God who relents of his judgment upon you for the sake of Jesus Christ, who changes the verdict, not because of what you have done, but because of what God has done for you, and you cannot ruin your life in such a way that God cannot restore it. At, at halftime of, of that football game, Roy Regals went in and, and looked at his coach and said, I'm not coming out for the second half. In fact, his exact words were these. He says, coach, I can't do it. I've ruined you. I've ruined myself. I've ruined the University of California, and I can't face the crowd to save my life. And Coach Price looked back at him and said, Roy, get up and go back out there. The game is only half over. Get up, go back out there, Jonah. The game is only half over. Get up, Nineveh, and go back out there. The game is only half over. Get up and go back out there. Your life is not over. And Roy went up there, and he had, a, as said, a, uh, just a stellar second half. And he blocked a punt, recovered a fumble, uh, was a, a stellar player in the second half. Their team ended up losing 8-7, to seven, the cost of a safety. And yet, he was named to the Rose Bowl Hall of Fame. He was named to the Cal Berkeley Hall of Fame, and he became a speaker, a nationwide speaker and motivational speaker for others in the midst of their struggles because the game wasn't over. This is what happens when we rest in a God who overthrows our lives and pursues us with a relentless grace so that we might experience in the relenting of God who changes his verdict and says to you, get up. The game is not over. Keep going because I have more for you by my relentless grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even when we run the wrong way, that by your relentless grace, you pursue us and that we cannot out your grace. It covers all of us, all of our brokenness, all of our waywardness, all of our spiritual complacency, uh, all of our, our, our sins of thought, word, and deed. Your grace covers it all, and you relent. You change your verdict so that we might know the new life that is ours in Jesus Christ. And as we know that new life, Lord, call us to get up and to get back out there and to keep going because now we have the opportunity to share with others the relentless grace from a relenting God who overthrows our lives so that we might know the great grace of a God who loves us. Turn us from Nineveh to Jonah so that we might proclaim your relentless grace to others. In Jesus' name, amen.